I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can find us on Twitter at OpenMindTV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Shoika Chakrabarti. He is president of the New Consensus and formerly chief of staff and campaign manager to AOC, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Troikot, you have talked recently articles about expediting the manufacturing of the vaccine. And I wanted to start, do we know how, how far the Biden administration has pushed the buttons to not only invoke the Defense Production Act, but to ensure that companies like Pfizer and Moderna are doing everything in their power to manufacture at highest well, you know, we, we don't. And I think one of the problems actually in the whole discourse around this is it's entirely centered around the Defense Production Act and around what Pfizer and Moderna can do on their own. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's a whole host of tools and a whole host of tactics that we could use that Biden could use, you know, that could mobilize the government to use to potentially ramp up production by quite a bit, you know, and, uh, and I'm actually not sure if they, know that those tactics exist. You know, maybe they do and they haven't used them. But it was disappointing to me to to hear the uh, sort of vaccine distribution production numbers that Biden uh, has shot for in his first 100 days. You know, I, I think it could be way higher. I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's actual, you know, physical bottlenecks where there's raw resources that we can't get and the earth has run out of. But from everything I've discovered so far and talking to folks who are, you know, work in vaccine manufacturing, that doesn't seem to be the case. Are there not components in the rescue package, uh, the, the trillion dollar plus rescue package that will enhance manufacturing capacity? Um, from what I can tell, not, not specifically, you know, it's really focused more on vaccine distribution. There's money in there for vaccine distribution. But there's not anything that I'm seeing in there that is specific to investing in, you know, for example, uh, building out capacity in new companies to build these machines from everything can tell. You know, some folks are saying the bottlenecks are potentially these machines that are called they're microfluidic based machines to turn uh, lipid nanoparticles. I mean, it's big words, but basically it's a machine to do one part of the process that there's only a handful of that exist. We think they're, you know, they, Moderna and Pfizer are using ones internally. We don't actually know if that's the real bottleneck, but people are, are, are suggesting it could be. And they're, you know, honestly, not very complicated machines. Um, you need some training to train some people to use them. Uh, but that's the kind of thing, you know, we should be investing in manufacturers who can easily make these machines and in wor- uh, workforce development to train up people to use these machines and then ask Moderna and Pfizer to contract out with those folks to uh, ramp up their production if that is indeed the bottleneck. You know, the real, I think the real benefit of using something, you know, there been, there's been talk about using DPA to uh, get Moderna and Pfizer to open source their IP. And I'm not sure if that alone is going to do anything. You know, we, we just really don't know. We, we might be capped out on our current supply chains. But I think what it will do is it'll allow us to figure out what the actual bottlenecks are. So the Biden administration can throw put money into the actual problems to ramp up manufacturing very quickly, you know, very quickly. Like I'm talking about within a month, I think we could probably get new facilities up if we actually tried Um again, talking to vaccine manufacturers, you know, often they're, they're in their brains, they're thinking this stuff will take a long time because going through the approval process takes a while. And of course there's 
real stuff we have to do to prove, you know, to make sure these vaccines that get produced when ramping up scale are are working well. But you can shorten that timeline. I mean, we just saw everyone was saying this vaccine's not even gonna come out for five years and we got it out in a year. So of course we could we could speed this stuff up if we focused our energy. My concern about the American Rescue Plan is that even though it is extremely popular, and maybe because it is extremely popular, Americans believe it to be a healthcare new deal. And that's really not what it is, right? That's that's correct. You know, I think it's it's good that Biden is at least signaling that he's willing to do something somewhat large. But I think we're joking ourselves if we think this is going to be uh, the end all be all, you know, that that just by doing this. I mean, even looking at the New Deal, right, the New Deal wasn't one stimulus package. The New Deal was a 10 year long program of trying different things trying and trying. And when things didn't work, we tried a different way when we, it wasn't ideological, you know, it wasn't just uh, socialism versus capitalism. It was about just trying everything possible. And sometimes we'd nationalize companies, we'd do it. Sometimes if we had to uh, go in and, and uh, you know, get labor to negotiate, we'd do that. We'd do everything possible to just get actual progress and get work going. And we did that, especially, you know, a better example, honestly, is the way we approach World War II. That's how I think we should be approaching COVID-19. We just didn't take no for an answer. So, yeah, my, my worry is exactly that, that we're going to pass this stimulus package. Um, it, you know, who even knows if the money is even going to go get mobilized and used effectively. And we're going to call it a victory. We're going to say, you know, one shot victory, especially given that the way we're doing it is through these, you know, Senate loopholes. Instead of getting rid of the filibuster, doing robust, you know, continuous uh, improvement for the American people. We're trying to do this one-shot approach through the budget reconciliation process. And I think it's setting our, us up for failure. You know, it's going to set us up for um, everybody. If, if this package doesn't work well, people's takeaway will be, oh, look, the government can't function, you know, and that's going to be a real shame if that happens. Emotional satisfaction is insufficient at the juncture of 22 or 2024. Um, yeah, I mean, there is not material progress. Yeah, it's not, you know, there's there's a, a political side to us and a real side to us. We have an actual problem in this country. You know, everyone in the media, you know, you accepted, but many people in the media, uh, especially in political media, try to break this out down into left versus right type of issues, right? As if um, it's just this game and everyone's just compromising. And it, it frustrates me to no end to see uh, White House reporters, you know, that's where their questions often come from, is from this political angle. Um, no one's really coming at this from the angle of we have an actual problem to solve. We've got to vaccinate tons of people. We've got to make sure millions of people don't go hungry. We've got to get people back to work once the economy comes back. We, how are we going to rebuild the 90% of small businesses that just went out of business from the pandemic, right? How are we going to actually solve these problems? And does the package that Biden proposes, will it actually solve those problems? And if not, what will we do afterwards to continue trying to solve those problems, right? That's, that's the angle we should be coming at this stuff from. And because it doesn't matter how good we feel or people working in DC feel about what they managed to do and patting each other on the back, if the people in America don't feel it, if they don't think anything real happened, uh, they're, they're going to at best you know, kids get disengaged from politics. And at worst, they're going to turn on us and vote for the next Trump style demagogue who comes along and says, I'll. It's not clear that that is understood in the ranks of Ron Klain, who does straddle the line between 
the, the New Deal and Great Society and the Obama-Clinton politics. Uh, but it's, it's not clear that it's understood that this is insufficient, specifically that you don't have a vaccination progress administration, if you will. You don't have accountability um, and you don't have the driving impetus at correcting systemic problems that have plagued this country during our pandemic response and predating our pandemic response. This is not building hospitals, uh, ramping up the kind of machinery that you allude to that would help us bolster mRNA vaccines into the future, pandemic preparedness. It's, you know, I, I think Ron is actually, you know, a smart guy and he's a great guy. And I think Biden's put a lot of good people around him on his team. But there's a form of governing that has just become foreign to our government over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, 60 years. Um, and it's this kind of governing where you kind of you're always looking for an excuse to just get something through, pat yourself on the back and sigh of relief. You know, no one's after, no one's going out trying to find a way to add things to this package. You know, they're just they're just trying to get this fragile thing through and, and call it a day. Um, and I get it, you know, like I get why they're feeling that way, but it's not sufficient, you know. And if you look at the kind of way someone like FDR led, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like far lefty speeches. Uh, it was actually very precise um, solutions to the things he was saying. You know, after he gave his arsenal of democracy speech, FDR went to Congress and gave them like a bill of this is what I need right now to build a hundred thousand planes. This is the way society is going to change. This is the way the economy is going to change. And then of course he led that way. He told the American people the same story. He just, he was straight with us. Right. And, uh, and, you know, imagine if Biden, like one of the things I just heard talking to someone, uh, you know, someone who works in vaccine manufacturing yesterday is, uh, you know, supply chains are backed up to build new facilities and all these um, companies that could even build the stuff are having trouble hiring people, right? Like that's one of the bottlenecks. Well, then Biden should go up there and be like, these companies are looking for work right now. If you want to be an American hero and help us get vaccines done two months faster and save 200,000 lives, you know, come do it, right? Like that's the kind of thing, like calls to action every day for Americans to step up and actually be a part of this. Right, um, and if you had solution. a vaccination progress administration, it would be about employing people in the exactly. manufacturing sector, in hospitals. You and Representative Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Dealers um, were admirably imaginative in resurrecting that movement. My problem ultimately was that the Green New Deal was not enough grounded in the history. I would have loved to see AOC and company give speeches that really helped resurrect that in a historical context. And ultimately, the media of what the Green New Deal was about um, was a detour from kind of the American past of LBJ and FDR. And it was, it was suggesting that this is too bold. Now on climate, Biden has been aggressive, more aggressive than economic stimulus or jobs or any of the other aspects of the Green New Deal or New Deal politics. But in the deployment of the Green New Deal, do you regret at all the fact that there was 
not a lot of history being recounted and conveyed to the American people when the Green New Deal was launched uh, to really say, look, this is not an aberration. We did this in the Johnson administration, some of it. We did this in the Roosevelt administration. You know, I think I think um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez actually did talk quite a lot in historical context, but something I learned from her, because I tend to fall into um, sort of historical context as I'm doing in this interview a lot, you know, I, I like to talk about how we've done it in the past, um, but that doesn't connect with everybody, you know, uh, and I think um, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez she had a good way of talking about it in a way that was uh, often about like clean air, clean water, things that people are facing right now and trying to solve it. And different people approach it from different ways. And, you know, I agree, you know, the media narrative around it tends tended to be awful and um, just try to pitch it again as this like left versus right thing. But the ultimate goal that we had in the rollout, because look, you know, she's not, she's not president. She wasn't president. So we, we had no, illusions that we we're going to put this out and all of a sudden it was going to become law. Um, we we're just trying to do the best we could with one member in the house. And our goal honestly was um, try to get as many people running for president to sign on to it. Cause we knew that's where the real power would be in at least 2021 and, um, and change the entire dynamics because climate policy up until that point was almost all centered around what should a carbon tax cost, you know, what's our, what's a optimally, optimally designed cap and trade program that uses the market. Um, and uh, but that was one side of it. And the other side of it was, you know, uh, the kind of keep in the ground anti-fracking movement. Um, and we just wanted to introduce this new approach to it, which was really about mobilizing our economy the way we did um, in the New Deal, but really the way we did in World War II to actively solve these problems. The same way we should mobilize our economy to build up vaccines, right? We can mobilize our economy to build the electric cars, to build interstate, uh, the inter the charging infrastructure, to retrofit all the buildings. Um, is this massive industrial policy that has just been gone from our consciousness and is the actual solution to this problem. You can't, you can't end climate change by just putting a price on carbon. The free market does not have the capital, quite literally, to just do it on its own. And I think we... You know, it was a, a mixed bag on the rollout, but I, I think we succeeded at that. You know, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of how that turned out and the fact that so many presidential candidates um, did sign on to it. And then Biden had to sort of um, not to, in order to not be seen as the left, but it, by responding to it, he had to respond with the largest climate plan industrial policy that anyone has ever run on. People forget Bernie Sanders ran in 2016 on a carbon tax was his climate policy. You know, that was his only thing. So, um, so I think that I actually think that went quite well. You you do provide ample evidence that the messaging was successful. You and I, maybe more historians by training, who want to intellectualize it, but I just think that the patchwork of kind of the lexicon, the diction, the rhetoric is important. And I know that the representative, it's not as if she was afraid to mention Roosevelt or FDR. The other question is, you answered it, you know, you called it the Green New Deal. Like you mentioned earlier in our program, the New Deal encompassed a range of commitments um, that were all trying to drive social equity, but wasn't specific to environmental focus. So I suppose another question, just in retrospect, thinking about these years that have evolved, um, because you clearly have been very successful, but do you think that if you had called it the New New Deal, or let's pick a, a modifier other than green, 
that there may have been success beyond environmental policy? I, I don't know, you know, and I actually think the success was beyond environmental policy, partially because it informed um, not just Biden's climate agenda, it kind of informed his whole Build Back Better agenda. Like he right. took this muscular like industrial approach, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I do think the messaging, yeah, you know, we we uh, we weren't sure what to call it. I mean, the Green New Deal name sort of just stuck because that's what we were calling it internally. And um, and I personally didn't like it as a name. But my reason for not liking it is I don't like naming things after stuff in the past. I think any, everything great was named uh, had its own original name, you know, Great Society, New Deal, their own, their own names. So that's my, that's my reveal on your program. I wasn't a big fan of the name Green New Deal. And I've, I've always thought about something like, you know, cause, cause the analogy we we're using historically often even wasn't the New Deal. And it measures like something more like World War II. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I think, I think the way our media works and the way I saw that play out, um, just to give you a sense of it, you know, when we announced it, of course, the, you know, sort of mainstream media, liberal media, as people think of it, like covered it. But if you look at the way it was covered on the right wing, like on Fox News, on talk radio, which covered it about 20 times more, I think, was when I looked at the numbers than any other media source. And they tried so hard to define it. So they would have just found a different way to try to derail it. You know, that's that's uh, I think that's what they have done with everything. There is intersectionality with the environment in every realm of human life, um, commerce, of course, air and water quality are the foundation. That our sort of proposal was that energy runs our economy, you know? So if you're talking about changing the system of energy that drives our energy is the literally the the fuel you know in our economy so if you're changing about talking about changing that that is an economic program that is a jobs program that is a thing to uh, build a new economy to do that right build a new foundation to our economy rather to do that and so um so that's what that's why it's like whenever i, I talked about it in the past i always talked about sort of an economics first program but i agree with you that the green and the green new deal i think um makes people approach it as a climate first thing, you know, and, and think and of it as just a climate change thing. In the spirit of being imaginative, were there alternatives that resonated more with you in terms of the, the name of the program? Oh, man. Um, some folks, uh, I think there was uh, people talked about like um, 21st century, the 21st century, you know, industrial revolution type of thing, or uh, so someone uh, had named that reconstruction and what they're also like, I think reconstruction is a great way to think about it. <laughs> of those three historically infused prospects, I think you went with the right one um, for sure. Yeah. Let, let's shift to your work at New Consensus and the Justice Democrats advocacy of primary campaigns against Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin. Don't you think that the probability of Cinema and Mansion signing on to nuke the filibuster, or at least partially nuke it, is more likely than beating uh, Joe Manchin in the Democratic primary, or or maybe not Cinema, but you know Joe Manchin. Talk about trials and tribulations of a political force of nature. Yeah, uh, he he has been that. So I'm just wondering, would the persuasion campaign perhaps be more effective to try to incrementally get them to warm to? abolishing the filibuster? Yeah. Well, for, first, I want to clarify that this is not just as Democrats doing it, because I know they've been getting a lot of emails um, from us launching. It's, it's through uh, a new group. It's called No Excuses PAC. That um, is me, 
Zach Exley and Corbin Trent um, were some of the founders of Justice Democrats originally. But, um, but, you know, it's a good question. You know, Cinema and Mansion are both up in 2024, right? So that's four years away. So we're not, um, so it's not really an either or, right? We're going to continue pressuring them. And I think more than us, many people are going to continue pressuring them uh, to get rid of the filibuster. And I think the real pressure on them for, on the filibuster is going to be when um, when the Republicans start blocking basic things that help people, right? What is the what is the the response going to be from Manjin and Cinema when the people in their state are starving and need help, but they're really committed to fighting for this Senate rule, you know, over the over the lives of the people in their state? Um, that's going to be the true test, and we're seeing the test right now. <laughs> you know, that's starting to happen right now. Um, so I think there's a, a good chance, you know, there's some chance that they'll back off on the filibuster. I'm honestly not sure that they still will, um, but it'd be great if they do, of course. At the same time, I don't think you forego a plan B. You know, it takes a long time to recruit people and specific, especially in places like um, like West Virginia, the Democratic Party has basically given up there. You know, I think it's very sad and sort of disappointing that the law, the reaction to this is that Joe Manchin is the only Democrat who could ever win in West Virginia. He's the best that whole state of hundreds of thousands of people can do, you know, and, um, and it's just this idea that we should just give up on parts of the country. And I just don't believe that. I mean, maybe that's idealistic, but I think worst case scenario, you know, maybe through this process, we find some amazing people in West Virginia. We try to build a bench there. Joe Manchin is not a young man. He's 73. He's not going to be senator there forever. So who's going to who's going to run for that seat after he's gone? Right. Who's going to who's looking to recruit there? I hope I don't think the DSCC is the right people to look to recruit there. So I think it's, uh, you know, some of our approaches to politics is you don't really you don't give up. Uh, any avenue of of trying to get change done, and we don't really have time to you know test one thing and then the next. Um, so we might as well start recruiting while also pressuring, and just get all the as much good as we can get done as fast as we can. A two pronged strategy. As a final question, how did the twenty twenty midterm results inform the way you view your work at? consensus and the democratic prospects to expand their majority in the house and the Senate. There is a whole cohort of the political establishment that wants to blame black lives matter or the racial justice movement for down ticket losses. Um, It is far more complicated than that. And that thesis may or may not be born in reality, but if you were to explain why you know, certain Senate and House Democratic candidates lost against all odds because they they really were expected in a wave or blue tsunami to not only defeat Trump, but to defeat Trumpism in those districts. What explains to you the mediocre or substandard House performance? Of course, we know a very promising performance in, in Georgia in the Senate after the um, general election day contest, but what to you most explained the weaker performance on the House side for the Democrats? Yeah, um, I actually want to specifically talk about the the racial justice piece of it um, first, which is just that I think it's, it's actually a good sign of why we lose, that people in seats that where no one even campaigned on those issues 
Um, Republicans ran attack ads against them, you know, on like defund the police um, are using that as an excuse for why they lost. I mean, it's it's your race. If something somebody says in a state, you know, two, 20, 200 miles away from you is causing you to lose. You're running a bad campaign. <laughs> you know, you're you're failing at your basic job of running a, ba- a, a campaign. Look at the other side of this. Like Republicans, there are many members in the of in the Republican caucus who proactively, you know, they actively campaign on and believe very unpopular things. They believe, for example, that you cannot get an abortion, even in the case of rape and incest. That is a very, very unpopular position in America, much more unpopular than defund the police. Why are they're not they they I've never seen a Republican complain that they've lost because one of their colleagues believe in uh, no abortion, even in the case of rape. That's, you know, it's just, it's just a different approach. I think that these Democrats are making excuses and that's the sign of the kind of candidates actually we're picking. I think we're picking bad candidates. We're making, picking the kinds of candidates who are making excuses rather than trying to uh, campaign, you know, in a strong, positive message kind of way. But more than that, I, I think if you look at the messages of a lot, what a lot of these House members in swing seats who lost what they ran on, in a time when the economy is in recession, people are losing jobs. Millions of people have lost their jobs. People are going hungry. Many of them did not even use the word economy. They didn't even talk about the economy. They, you know, they just campaigned against Trump. They just campaigned on sort of like shallow issues and did not talk, propose any real plan. I think it's a real po- problem that the Democrats do not campaign nationally. They don't, as a party, say, if you vote for us, this is what we're going to do for you as a party. In fact, you see many Democrats like Amy McGrath in Kentucky running against their party. You know, she's running, she ran as a pro-Trump Democrat in Kentucky, which is confusing to voters. Voters don't fall for that. Voters aren't dumb. These candidates are treating their voters like they're dumb and they're not, you know, give them some basic respect. I think, you know, and the counterpoint on this, like, Biden did very well in many of these places where Democrats lost. And Biden did, you know, whether you liked this message or not, he did actually run quite strongly on the economy. He had a pretty strong message on what he's going to do. And he tried to paint a vision of what he was going to do. And I think even though he's not, he's not a Barack Obama, he's not, you know, the, this amazing, inspiring hope candidate. Um, he managed to outperform because he had any message whatsoever. And in states where people did run with Biden, like in Georgia, where Warnock and Ossoff ran with Biden on a very specific promise, on a very specific claim of what they will do if you win the Senate, what the Democrats will do for you, which was $2,000 checks if they win the Senate, they won. So I think it's not, you know, politics is not rocket science. I don't, I I really don't think it is. I think people vote on shallow issues if you don't offer them anything but if you offer them something then they do actually vote on the stuff you're saying you're going to do and then they judge you on it they they see whether or not you actually deliver what you did what you said you would thank you so much for your insight today thanks for having me i really enjoyed it